If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is hour number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this August 13th, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I am the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Hour number two is when we usually have a, a special guest. We've had a interesting run of uh, special guests. Uh, recently, we've had uh, Glenn Beck, uh, Milo Iannopoulos. Last week, we had Mike Chernovich, who is a well-known pro-Trump, I guess you'd still call him a pro-Trump, a supporter who's gotten huge on Twitter and on the Internet and has bizarrely even been talked about in National Security Council meetings. Uh, that interview last week got a lot of play. Uh, I think it was... Uh, interesting to listen to because as I did with Milo, instead of really confronting Chernovich, although I did confront him on some things, my main goal was to just kind of let people understand what he's all about. And I think we did a pretty good job of that. You can decide for yourself if you go to freespeechbroadcasting.com and check out our number two of last week's uh, podcast. But I think that the most important element of that interview, other than Mike's nuttiness, which certainly relates to what I'm about to say, is that this is the type of person who has either real or perceived influence in the world of Donald Trump. And that's really pretty freaking scary. I mean, this is not a person who should even remotely be anywhere near the presidency of the United States. And yet, Here he is. And one other thing which I didn't mention last week, which I should have, I didn't for a number of reasons, maybe partially out of host error, is that during the interview, Mike was speaking to us from a Volvo dealership. Now, he was speaking to us from a Volvo dealership because, uh, well, I had scheduled a time period when he said his wife would allow him to do the interview, which I thought was funny for a you know a big badass Trump supporter, uh, but okay, as a married guy, I fully understand that because I'm constantly asking my wife for permission to do anything, other than maybe go to the bathroom. But I digress. But I thought it was odd, and I did want to ask him whether or not buying a Volvo was part of the Make America Great Again campaign. 
But make sure you take a listen to the interview last week in hour number two with Mike Chernovich. This week, we have a very different uh, interview. We're going into academia and journalism, two subjects that I find to be very interesting. Our, our guest is a guy by the name of Joel Kaplan. He is former Pulitzer Prize-nominated journalist, associate dean of graduate programs, and journalism professor at the famous Syracuse University Newhouse School, where I very nearly attended he is Joel Kaplan. Welcome to the podcast, Joel. Thanks for having me. All right. One of the reasons why I wanted to speak with you on the podcast is that uh, you're making the argument as a journalism professor that uh, Donald Trump is making journalism great again. And I found this to be uh, intriguing and uh, probably, in my opinion, also uh, a bit wrongheaded, but I wanted you to at least have the opportunity to make your case. So, so why don't you explain to, to me now why it is you believe that? All right, well, I'm not going to give you a complete history lesson, so I'll just give you a recent history lesson. That obviously in the last 10 years, the, the profession of journalism has, uh, has gone uh, into an economic destruction mode in that uh, what basically uh, financed it for all these years was advertising revenue, and newspapers started losing it hands over fist, beginning mainly with, uh, with Craigslist and things like that. And uh, TV stations, because of, a, because of a diverse viewership now and people getting their entertainment from all different places, are started losing viewers as well in terms of the TV networks and even local news. So that uh, there were layoffs, there were uh, news organizations closed down, some started up, closed down again. Some daily newspapers that had flourished went to uh, three days a week. Uh, including the paper where I'm at in Syracuse, New York. And you, you had basically people saying it's a dead profession. It's, it's right up there with typesetters and uh, 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 horse and buggy drivers. And it was looking very bleak, not just for you know my former colleagues and people who I teach, um, but also just for people who are interested in democracy because you know the media is the fourth branch of government in some, some respects. And so uh, it was basically going down a big toilet bowl. And I think the uh, election of Donald Trump has reversed that and has reversed it because people realize the, the need to find out news, to find out what's going on. I think you've seen the Washington Post, New York Times, is their circulation has just exploded. Uh, I think even local newspapers and local TV news operations have done much better. And so that's why I believe he's making journalism great again. Joel, aren't you really saying that Trump has made journalism profitable again as opposed to great again? And in a weird way, don't Donald Trump, uh, doesn't Donald Trump and so-called journalism have this symbiotic relationship where they need each other desperately in order to survive while they're both pretending to hate each other? Okay, so I will agree with everything you just said, but I will say that um, profitability means greatness, especially in, in our capitalist society. You're sounding a lot like Trump, by the way. You do realize that, right? <laughs> no, I think I'm sounding more like you, not like Trump. Okay. Um, <laughs> in terms of, I mean, look, let, let, let me digress for a second. Trump bashes, bashes, bashes the news media and then says uh, uh, the New York Times is a jewel. Everyone forgets that he said that before, you know, when he went to to speak to them. That was a jewel. Then he bashes and bashes and bashes different media. Then what does he do? He calls them up. 
he gets on the plane and goes off the record with all those reporters and then asks them, why didn't you write what we talked about? And they go, well, it's off the record, sir. And they go, he goes, okay, put it on the record. And then they humanize him because he's this great guy in person to them. He's like the guy who, you know, who, who loves you and he welcomes you and hugs you at his party. And then as soon as you leave, he just bashes you and says, what a, what a rotten, stinking crook you are. So you can't believe anything he says in, those, in terms of wh- whether he like He lives for the media. He is the media. He's our first totally media creation, not in terms of John Kennedy using the media, but actually being of the media. He is of the media like no president has ever been before. But now let me get back to your first point. We're a capitalistic society. The way that newspapers you know, flourished in the 60s and 70s is because they were presses were not just printing newspapers, they were printing money. Right. I mean, the, the newspaper industry, the, the media uh, mavens of this world, they were some of the most wealthy people in this country, um, and including the, 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 the family that endowed our school, the Newhouse family. Um, I mean, they own newspapers, they own magazines, they own television stations, they own cable and uh, they were, if you look at the uh, Fortune, you know, top 50 people, two of them were in the top 10 for I don't know how many years. I don't know if they're still there, but, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, I mean, we're not going to have a tag day for them. But we're talking about the Graham family. We're talking about the Super. Right. We get it. Joel, I agree yeah. with you 100% that, yeah. that me, the media not long ago, newspapers, TV stations, radio stations used to be licenses to print money. But And, and this right. is what's fascinating to me about about uh, speaking with you because you and I agree on almost all the underlying facts, but we have a very different interpretation of what they mean. See, I think what what you're missing and cutting to the chase here is that 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 profitability back in the golden era, if you want to refer to it as that, allowed journalism to be journalism. What we have today is that the only way for journalism to be, remain remotely profitable is for one of two things to happen. Either to create BS narratives that sell well when the news isn't hot and heavy, or to have crazy things going on constantly, which they are in the Trump administration, right. which artificially inflates the the interest level and therefore keeps up the, the profitability or at least the potential profitability. And my basic problem, and I think this goes to the heart of why journalism is now dead as opposed to great in your mind, is that popularity is what drives journalism today. In order for it to be profitable, it must be popular. It, that in the, in the era of the golden age of printing money, it didn't need to be popular. It could just be the truth because the audience had very few options to find what they wanted. Now they can find whatever truth they want anywhere they want to go. And so it forces journalism or the news media to only follow narratives that are going to have an audience. Where am I wrong about that? You're wrong about it in that in, it, things that have always been popular have been used. And that's where the National Enquirer made all their money and the gossip. Magazine. But that that's wasn't where, journalism. No, no, that's where People Magazine came from. But people, historically, people have, have flocked to the, the news media when things happen that affect their lives. Right. Vietnam, Vietnam War, for example. Um, 
uh, Gore versus Bush. Right. And, and, I get it. Big events. Weeks. I get yes. it. And those can't so, happen all the time, although they're seemingly happening all the time during the Trump administration, or at least right. well, they're, let, they're let being portrayed that second. way. 9-11 is a perfect example. Right? right. That was a big incident, but that lasted for six months to a year. Forget about even the wars. Right. I'm just talking about the right. coverage of the effect on the people in New sure. York and the people who died. So, so yeah, it can, it can be sustained, although it could be exhausting, and some people want to turn it off, and I think that's what's happening now. So much going on that affects people's lives, like uh, issues of climate change, issue of potential war in North Korea, the whole Russian collusion. What, every day this president, we don't know what's going to happen to him. So people, people are actually like saying, what's going to happen next? And they're flocking to, to, to legitimate mainstream news organizations. And here's where I think you're, you're also wrong about this. So when I came of age, which was the 70s, um, as a reporter, you had Watergate, you, had, you could where you could make a real difference. And so you had some of the best and the brightest, the people who graduated from the Ivy Leagues, who maybe didn't even have a journalism background, uh, who decided, hey, I'm going to go work at the Tennessean where I work. We had people, you know, who were Yale grads who came there and said, I'm going to be journalists. You had a guy like uh, Nick Lemon who was in Harvard and, you know, went down there and wrote books and then became uh, just a, a very strong journalist. In the last 10 years, nobody who was, I would consider to be, you know, the best of the brightest of that generation decided they were going to be going to journalism. They went into, you know, they're going to go into venture capitalism. They're going to go into, they're going to go work for Google. They're going to do all sorts of other things. Where I think the changes is, again, I think you're seeing an element of young people in college who are very bright saying, hey, I can still make a difference through journalism. That's my point. So you're seeing, we, so you're seeing that your students at Syracuse, the Newhouse School, uh, your journalism students are smarter now than they used to be because better and brighter people want to go into journalism. I think that, yeah. Well, first of all, Newhouse has always had really bright kids, but you know what? They didn't necessarily go into journalism. A lot of them went into advertising. Right. A lot of them. But went okay, into I want to make sure I'm clear yeah. on this. I, I, you're, you're Dean Kaplan. You're saying yeah. that that the the quality of student that you're seeing going into journalism has increased because of Donald Trump. I believe yes. I mean, based on the applications I've seen in the last year, and you know, we've had a precipitous decline in the number of people who are interested in journalism, and it's it's coming back. I mean, just in terms of the, the number and the quality of these kids. Yeah. By the way, um, how many of those are conservatives, do you think? How many of those uh, kids you're seeing applying to be into journalism are conservative? Well, I hope none of them are conservative or liberal. I hope they're just <laughs> truth seekers. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, come oh, I mean, come on. How many of the uh, professors at Syracuse uh, Newhouse School do you think uh, voted for, for Donald Trump? How many? At the Newhouse School? Yeah. I'd say... Probably maybe five, five to ten. Five to ten out of how many? Seventy-five. Yeah, and and how certain would you be? Would I'm curious. Is there any one professor at the Newhouse School that you would be you would bet your life voted for Donald Trump and has said so yeah. publicly? Yeah, there are a couple. There's I don't a know couple. If they say it publicly. Uh, they would. I mean, there's a difference. So they wouldn't. You know, hold on a second. Just to be yeah. clear. You don't know yeah. of one professor at the Newhouse School 
for for media studies or whatever they call yeah, yeah. it. Um, public communication. Public communication. You don't know for sure of one that's of one Trump voter who's a professor at that school willing to say so publicly. Is that true? Well, I, I think there are a couple who would be willing to say so publicly. I'm just not going to out them right now. <laughs> because, <laughs> wait a minute, just by re- referring to this as outing, doesn't that say everything? Well, you know, we are in New York. Uh, but <laughs> so is Donald Trump. He's a New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, yeah well, he did in the, the city. No, but I look. I, uh, but the, the reality of, of what I'm trying to get to here, and I think you agree, is that there is an overwhelming liberal mentality when it comes to academia in general and specifically within journalism studies. Journalism appeals far more to the liberal mindset, the liberal mentality, and, uh, than it does to someone who might be conservative. You would agree with that, wouldn't you? Um, not totally. I mean, look, <laughs> well, the people who go into journalism want to make a difference. There's no question about that. And so that, you know, the whole comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable Right. Right. So, you know, if you go through the at least that used to be. No, no. Actually, that's not the way it is anymore. Now it's let me do something that can that can save my cushy job. So that because I'm a late, I'm a lazy person who likes getting attention. And I like to be you're not just like going a wipe the whole like put everyone in that category. Joel, I've dealt with a lot of a lot of mainstream big time quote unquote journalists and their number one goal because of the business model being broken that we've discussed up until Trump, their number one, number two and number three goal is keep my cushy job because without my job, I cease to be a person and no one will care about me anymore. That's, you know, listen, I, I, we can talk about this forever, but I, for example, I've, I've, I've taught in this uh, National Security Studies program we have at Syracuse, all right? And these are all high-ranking military people who, who kind of feel like you do, or they really uh, pretty much dislike the press. And I talk to them, and I'll tell you this, too. The people I know who've done very well in journalism are very smart, very gifted, and very talented. And they see journalism more as a public service, just like military people do. They can make a lot more money doing something other than journalism. Trust me. The people at the New York Times are reporters. And watch them. Watch how many take the bio. And watch where they end up. They'll end up at, 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 at big corporations, as, as communications executives, or even The point of being is that they, they have a big ego, and they want to be in journalism because they think they can make a difference, not because that's and they see it as more of a public service than anything. They're willing to take a lower salary, which, by the way, one reason that you don't have as many conservatives in the media is because they're not willing to take a lower salary for a public service. Or group. maybe it's because there's only five teachers at the Newhouse School that you would say were Trump voters, and therefore they don't feel welcome at journalism schools. Maybe well, that's you know, part my, of it. My feeling is, I mean, I still I, I the whole uh, – um, uh, the former editor of the Washington Post, who didn't vote because he didn't think you should vote as a journalist. I, I'm in that camp. And you, you ask my students, they can't tell you who I'm for or who I'm against. Because <laughs> I've, no, go ahead. You can ask them. Because well, I didn't know. I played, I played devil's advocate in class. But beyond, beyond that, as a journalist, you're looking for conflict and con- the bias is toward conflict and controversy, not so much toward left and right. Well, you, uh, you, you worked at the Tennessean, right? 
I did. Yeah. One of the most liberal papers yes. in the country. <laughs> and then, wait, wait. And then I worked at the Chicago Tribune, one of the most conservative papers. Well, in the I wouldn't call the Chicago Tribune conservative, but well, it's but the well, Tennessean, having lived in wait, Tennessee, having lived yeah. in Nashville, I agree with you that the Tennessean is about as liberal a newspaper as you can possibly All find. Right, so, see, a, you know the two biggest stories I, I worked on when I was at the Tennessean? No, I don't. No. It was, uh, I, I wrote a series of investigative stories on Ray Bland. Democrat that resulted in his indictment and conviction. Good and then you. I wrote the one that was, I was a Pulitzer finalist was on U.S. Representative Bill Bone, a Democrat. Good. Who, uh, by the way, who I wrote, I, I did such a good job of exposing the bribes and everything else he was taking that he was elected mayor, which good. shows you the, uh, <laughs> the ability of journalists. Right. Sometimes. Well, actually, you know, and that leads me back to Trump because, I, I, you know, there's a lot of different ways we can go with this discussion. And it's all interesting. Yeah. But getting back to Trump, see, okay. part of why I disagree on many levels with your initial premise that Trump is making journalism great again. And I, I believe journalism to be dead is I actually think that Trump, even though um, he's temporarily like a dead cat bounce helping yeah. helping journalism. I think he's going to kill it in the long run because kind of what you just said about the guy you exposed eventually getting elected mayor. We're now living in a world where nothing matters thanks to Trump. Nothing. It used to be that there was inherent tension and drama with a for, especially with a president because oh my gosh if we find this level of dirt he'll have to resign or he'll be impeached or or he'll repel you know something his approval ratings will go down to the low 30s or there, there there'll be some repercussion with Trump there's nothing we see we see on an almost weekly basis stories that would be haymakers if you put in you know in a boxing analogy against Donald Trump that have no impact on him because he only cares about his base his base is a cult and his base doesn't give a damn what the Washington Post the New York Times or CNN is reporting about him so I love I love the fact that I'm like agreeing with you on almost everything you're saying. I think that the, um, the greatest line he ever made, the, most, the, the truest thing he said was that he could, kill, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and no one would care. Right. And that's exactly what you're saying. But here's the thing. His base, even by any stretch of the imagination, is only 25% of the, of the voting public. Correct. Now, where he's lucky is that most of the public doesn't vote. But what's different is all these haymakers will add up. And one thing I learned as a journalist is you can't take it personally. Like I said, I wrote all these stories. I wrote all these stories. And what happened? He got elected mayor. Eventually, though, he had to quit as mayor because of a sex scandal, believe it or not. Not the fact that he had accepted bribes from a defense contractor. Um, and even, But you just can't say, you know, it's not like, it's not, you know, this sounds maybe naive to you, but it's not my role. If I'm a journalist covering Trump, it's not my role to change public opinion to get him out. My role is just to report the facts, and then you as the public can make up your mind. You can, you can choose to ignore everything I've written, everything I've written, and vote for him anyways. That's your prerogative. Sure. Just don't come, to, don't come to me in a month or a year and say, why didn't you tell me about this? Because we're telling you about this. You can do what you want with it. And I think the hard thing for a journalist is they do take it personally. They say, hey, we found all this out and all this out and all this out, and he's like saying it's fake news. And we're like saying, no, it's not. It's not fake news. And I would just let him, let him say whatever he wants to say. Just keep plugging along. 
Well, and you know what? If it doesn't make a difference, it doesn't make a difference. But hold on a second. You, but, but and this gets back to my popularity issue, which I don't think yes. you, you fully addressed, because I think this is at the heart of why journalism is dead. I think we, they, the pursuit is no longer about truth. It is about narratives that will sell enough for us to keep our jobs. And let's let's take this out of the theoretical and put it into the practical. Okay. Right now, uh, Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, they've been all over the Russia narrative, okay? Yeah. Now, uh, now I-, I think the Russia story is incredibly important, and I think that there's got to be some semblance of fire there. I don't know what it is exactly yet, but there's it's definitely a legitimate story. It's not fake news, in my opinion, all right? I don't know what it is yet, but it's not fake news. Here's my concern. If Donald Trump magically had 60-65% approval ratings and the ratings for Russia-related stories were just a little bit less than what they currently are, I think the media would drop Russia like a hot potato because regardless of how important it was or whether uh, it it was going to lead to anything because it wouldn't be good for them. It would not, on a daily basis be something that, you know, is at the, the highest level on, on their web pages as far as uh, most uh, shared or liked or, or viewed or whatever. Um, we now live in a world where you can immediately, on an hourly basis, track how each story is going to do and how popular it is. And because Trump is so hated by huge segments of the left, any Russia-related story is going to do great on Twitter, Facebook, on, on the Internet, on television ratings. If the circumstances were slightly different, I believe that we wouldn't see nearly as much reporting on this. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I disagree with you on two points. Point A is, um, let's say his popularity was at 65% because, again, you know, he's now created 10 million jobs, unemployment's at 2%. We have this fantastic health care system. Uh, and even though we're, we're dumping pollutants everywhere, uh, the environment is magically cleaned up. So he's just fantastic. There's, right. there's still 35% who disapprove. And there's probably the same 25% who say he can shoot somebody on, um, on 50th Avenue and get away with it. There's 25% that will hate him no matter what he does. And they will eat up that Russia story, and they'll want more and okay, more. Okay, but you're more. actually making you're, my wait, point. Wait, wait, you're actually wait, wait, making my you're, point. Right. You're saying we're fragmented. We are right. fragmented. Right. So if you can get 25% of the people to read your right. stuff, you're good. But here's my second point, and this goes back, and I know it was a different age, and we've talked about this before, that during Watergate you only had you know three network stations and only a handful of newspapers. But, you know, the first six months of Watergate, the Washington Post wrote that, and they were by themselves. Nobody picked it up. AP Because they could up. afford to, because they were a license to print money. Yeah, I know, but I'm but my point is that it wasn't a great story that people cared about. I no but you're, you're making it. my point, Joel. Yeah. And that is that in that era, the Washington Post could fart out anything they wanted and they'd make a mint because that that was the nature of the business model. So they right. could they could afford to put Woodward and Bernstein and whoever else was working on the story with nothing else, and have them drill and drill and drill, and eventually they they hit pay dirt for a, for a variety of reasons, not all of which necessarily were because of great journalism, but that's that's what happened. That can't happen today because no. But we, see, the point is that we're opposite that, and they it's not that they can afford to do it now; they must do it now 
because it's the only way they can survive to get no, no, no. 25% let, 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 yes. me, let me give you a scenario. Let's go back to, because okay. Watergate is a great example. Because yeah. because it's happening in the early seventies, where you know it is the heyday of mainstream news media. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, you know, four television stations are making a mint. Even you yeah. know, radio stations are making a mint. Newspapers, everybody's rolling in money, and there's a firewall between the business side and the journalism side, uh, and that's no longer the case. But if if today. There were two reporters at the Washington Post that were spending all their time on this one Watergate story, and it wasn't popping on on Twitter or Facebook or uh, on you know on their website. And and time after time after time, it wasn't being picked up. It wasn't getting any traction. They would be pulled off the story way before, way before, because they couldn't afford to put two. Re- prime reporters on a story no one cared about for months. Well, this is totally theoretical, but I, I, I think I disagree with you. If they didn't think there were, if they thought there was a story there, eventually they would keep those reporters no, on them. Not anymore. I, I, I truly believe Not it. anymore. I, I think you're going to, I think you do see it. I think you even see it with the New York Times now and how they're just hunkering down on this Russia story. I mean, well, the Russia story is, like you said, a lot of people are turned off by that, by the story, because they don't understand the relevance of it. And they're stayed under it. I mean, that story with Don Jr. at that meeting, that was a huge story. Let me give that you an example. Let me, let me, let me give you an example that's going to blow your mind, Joel. All okay. right? All right. And this may take us down a path that I didn't anticipate to go, but I think this is a really good example, especially since we're talking about the Washington Post. Okay. Uh, just for the sake of argument, I want you to accept a premise that's going to blow your mind. All right? Okay. Yep. I want you to accept that everything that the news media reported about the so-called Penn State Jerry Sandusky story was false, all right? I, mm-hmm. I want you to accept this because I have investigated it for five years, and I know, all right? And I okay. want, but, but that this story, the counter-narrative to that story, has zero popularity. And I want you to accept that a crime reporter for the Washington Post, which this is true, has looked into this whole story exactly the same way I did, and came to the exact same conclusion and went to his editor and said, hey, I want to look into this because you'll have to accept if I'm right, this is a massive story of, of the level of almost Watergate if I'm right, which I am. And, if, and, and that that reporter, that reporter gets told by the editor, no, it's too risky. No one cares. You got more important things to work on. And therefore, he's not allowed to pursue the story. Now, would that story shock you, or would it, or would it not shock you, and would it therefore uh, back up my premise? Well, it would make me very sad, and it would, it would go into my worries about what happened to the news media 10 years ago and why I am hoping that we are making journalism great again. Because, look, I've, I've, I've heard stories about editors killing stories or doing things that's never, by the way, uh, in the practice with me at two pretty good newspapers that if you have a story and, and, and you can prove it or you can show where it's coming, I've always had leeway to do that. But I've heard people who haven't. And I, and I think there's probably more of that now than there ever has been before for exactly what you said. There's, there's a lot fewer reporters, even at the good places, and they can't spend their time um, doing things that they don't think either A, people care about, or B, will, will, will come to fruition. Um, but if, 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 if this person has what you say they have, 
then I, I'm I'm relatively shocked because I, any editor I know would say, okay, if you got this, go for it. No, not today. Not today. There's no risk-reward. It's all about what the 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 level of safety, the level of likely reward, how much resources is it going to take, uh, does anyone care? And and I'm telling you, that whole story is is the classic example of where a, the media bought into a false narrative because it was popular and never looked at the counter narrative because it was toxic and it was all about popularity. And, and and to me, it's it's while it's the worst example, it is emblematic of everything else that's happening. And frankly, it's why Donald Trump, getting back to Trump, it's why Donald Trump got the Republican nomination. Because well, he I, was popular. I, I, it was a popular narrative. Um well, I, also, I was going to say, I don't think uh, Sandusky, Jerry Sandusky had anything with him getting the nomination. No, but no, no, no. I'm talking. I'm talking. I'm talking about this issue of yeah. popularity. Pursue yeah, well, in, 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 the, in the during the Republican nominating process. Donald Trump coverage of Donald Trump was good for everybody, even the liberal outlets. I mean, it's hilarious to see CNN and MSNBC telling us now that he's the you know, a danger to America when they yeah. were happy to give him hundreds of millions of dollars of free advertising time because they never thought he would win. I mean, right. Well, and their ratings went up and all that. You know, I, I try to, to differentiate between the, the you know, newspapers and, and TV stations because they've always been, TV's never had, had the number of journalists, the number of the ability to go deep in anything. So anything that's going to get them ratings without having to do too much, they're going to do. All right. But the, the opinion leaders still are, there still are the agenda setters at times in the post. Um, and so the, the, the electronic media tells me it always picks up what's there. But during a campaign, they're going to go to the place that gets the greatest ratings. You know, it's always been the case. And that's why people who've always tried to run third party or something like that get short shrift in this country because they, they're, they're assumed to be, you know, out of the mainstream, not bona fide candidates, and that's it. If, if Trump had run as a third party person, he, he wouldn't have gotten more than, well, I don't know, maybe he would have depending on how, how it covered. But, but I, I think he would, he would have found it difficult. He was smart. He went in the Republicans with the, I guess you wouldn't call them 16 dwarfs, but you, he had people <laughs> that he just, he just looked really good against because he is, he is savvy. You know, you, you can criticize him all you want, but he has, some, he has some media savvy, and he knows what he's doing, and he knows how to get away with it. But that said, running a campaign and being president are two different things, and I, I just think it's catching up with them. Right, and well, you can talk about his base, but his base is his base, and it's still only 25%. All right. Well, you you are downplaying, I think, the, the relevance or the significance or the influence of television. Uh, and obviously, uh, Trump is a TV guy. Trump is obsessed yeah. with television. And, you know, one of the problems I have, for instance, with CNN, and I, I actually – Watch CNN way more than I watch Fox News now because I think Fox News has turned into state-run media, yeah. which is just disgusting. Uh, but but CNN, I have a huge problem with because now I think their reporting on on Trump is actually pretty good. I think most of what they report on Trump is solid. I think the re- the resignation of those three reporters recently was actually proof of that that they were willing to to enforce accountability when they got it wrong. But here's where. Here's where I, I have a, a big problem. I believe journalism is dead in that CNN has to understand that they must pay a price 
for having done the following things. For eight years, they were a cheerleader for Barack Obama. That for, for several months, they went chasing after a, a missing Malaysian plane, which was a non-news story because it was good for ratings. Uh, and then they give Donald Trump, during the, the nominating process, dozens and dozens, of, if not hundreds, of hours of free airtime to promote his campaign. You can't do that and then still be taken seriously when now it's in your self-interest to attack somebody. Am I wrong about that? No, I don't think you're wrong. I think it, it's a little bit more complex than that. But I think um, that – so when I talk about TV, I, I'm not necessarily denigrating that because clearly um, that's where most of – most well, now people get information from, from anywhere. But if you're going to, like, encapsulate by a percentage of where you get your information from, it's going to be from the networks or from cable. I mean, because that's for people – and then maybe not from watching it, but from people posting on Facebook or – or they want to, you know, Anderson Cooper, look what Anderson Cooper did and all that. It's much easier for them to do than to, to link to, to newspaper stories, which people may or may not read. They, they'll watch videos and all that. And I totally agree. I mean, it's always been a, but it's always been a ratings game with, with television. It's one reason that, you know, look at primetime schedules. Look how, look how news used to be a big driver of ratings. And then it's like every network out there was trying to figure out a way to get rid of the nightly newscast they could. There was talk about bringing that down to 15 minutes at one point. Um, and then guys, so then, and then people kept saying, well, you know, just go to cable if you want your news. We're just going to be an entertainment uh, network here. And I think very few people actually get their news these days from the nightly news shows. So that doesn't even matter anymore. I agree that CNN matters. I, I, but just like Fox matters, and I, I do think it's important because I think the journalists at Fox, for the most part, are very good. Uh, it's, it's, it's that Fox is overwhelmed by their, you know, talk shows and their, the Hannity's of the world and all that, who, who someday say they're journalists and someday say they're not. Um, and, uh, CNN doesn't have as much of that. So they're not as far there, but they do kind of bleed in between their news and their talk. It, it, so it's not as separate, I don't think, as in Fox. And that's, I think, where they, they, can, they can be open to more criticism. Joel, do you agree with taking this out of the, the particular uh, uh, situation of CNN into the broader scheme of the mainstream news media? Do you agree that the mainstream news media's impact on Donald Trump has been greatly diminished for a lot of reasons, but one of which is very legitimate, which is that all of them, for eight years, did no journalism against Barack Obama and basically had their pom-poms out. And so, therefore, anyone right of center is perfectly justified in being at very least suspicious, if not completely, totally disbelieving of anything the mainstream news media says about Donald Trump. Is that not legitimate? No, I don't think that's legitimate because I think most people right of center spent their time listening to Rush Limbaugh and watching Fox News. So they got... They no, but you're not. You're, that's not the issue. My issue no, is, is if you're issue. a right of center person after the yeah. mainstream news media cheerleads for Barack Obama openly for eight years, and by the way, more than that, prior to his election, so really nine years for the year of his campaign through eight years of presidency, if they're cheerleading for nine years for Barack Obama, why would you believe anything they say about a Republican? All right. So I need to I guess to ask you one question. When you say cheerleading, yes. what exactly do you mean? On what <laughs> issues were they cheerleading 
Give me the issues that they were cheerleading. Everything. That they could, no, no. Don't give me this everything. I, I did an entire movie. I did an entire movie called Media <laughs> Malpractice: How Obama Got Elected. It was it was debuted on the Today Show. Check well, it out. That's how that's how he got elected. I'm yes. talking about as president. Okay, Where so you acknowledge they, so you acknowledge they elected him. I'm glad you acknowledge that. The, well, the, the, well, boy, you're starting to put words in my mouth. I acknowledge that his race for the presidency was certainly unique, and a lot of people were cheering it on. Absolutely, in the no media. Okay, so why yeah. so why would we then not presume that if the media owns him and put him in office, that they wouldn't also be afraid of criticizing their guy who also happens to be black and any criticism of a black guy is inherently racist in this country, according <laughs> to the news media? Well, I mean, I can go with a lot of places because because you cover... I mean, look, okay, the New York Times put Bill Clinton in, in, uh, in office in 1992, right? By your logic, mm, they were... Not alone. They, they I, don't think they, I don't think they have the power to do that, but okay. Well, well, but, I mean, they were cheerleaders. Who, who was the news media who, who, who broke the story about his commodities trading and all the Whitewater stuff? It was the New York Times. People seem okay. to forget that. I, I didn't, I'm talking about Bill Clinton. I'm talking about Barack I know, Obama. but my point is that just because you... The editorial page, whatever news media wants someone elected. And once they get elected, they still want to cover him because what they do is, is no, they. There get was news. no. He was the only president of our time taking taking it out of the mainstream news media, and putting it in media in general. He was the only one that the late night comics wouldn't joke about for heaven's well, sake. Well, we're talking about comics. Those they All matter. Right. They matter. They, 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 well, I they mean, absolutely matter. Okay, yeah, so absolutely. so you would, would acknowledge that there's never been a president in our history that the comics were afraid to joke about other than Barack Obama. And that was emblematic of how the news media treated him. So my question, and I really want an answer to this, Joel, is okay. does not the news media deserve to be looked at more skeptically by anyone who's right of center because of the soft treatment they gave Barack Obama? No, because I don't really, I don't buy your thesis because I'm still waiting for you to tell me oh my what scandal <laughs> issue that they should have gone after Obama that they did. Wait a minute. That's a that's a hilarious assessment. If you don't investigate somebody and you you're invested in them being virginal, Wait, so then of course there's not going to be any massive scandals because you're not investigating. <laughs> so there, you know, he has he has the least amount of scandal that because no, of, because the wait, news wait, wait, media wait. wasn't interested. No, what well, about the IRS? About- what about the use of the IRS against conservative groups? What about that? Yeah, what about it? Was it investigated? What happened? <laughs> Nothing. Were those, by the way, were those political appointees who did right. that? Or civil service. People. Are you are you suggesting that he that, that that had nothing to do with the Obama administration? It was just coincidental. I'm what I'm telling you is that <laughs> if you look at his cabinet, okay, and you look at the okay. people he appointed and his senior staff, Here, unlike any okay. other administrations, Democrat or Republican, right? You didn't have indictments. You didn't have convictions. Oh, hold on a second. Let let, let me give you a, an, an analogy here, since we're almost to football season. Okay, okay. Uh, if you're a quarterback and uh, you got an offensive line 
that knows that they can hold and uh, and and kick and trip uh, the defensive line and the referees, i.e. the media, are never going to call any uh, penalties whatsoever. And you know you have all the time in the pocket you want. Guess what? You can be one hell of a quarterback. And that's what Barack Obama was because right. he had zero fear of anything he said being or did being turned into uh, re- anything remotely similar to a scandal or controversy, whatever, that's because true. the news media well, was going prosecutor. to get the pom-poms right. out for him. Right. Okay. So let's talk about that. So in your wildest imagination, even create where the IRS or any of this stuff, is anything he could have done worse than even the least – Horrible thing that Donald Trump has done in terms of Trump uh, didn't uh, exist yet. We, no, I'm you're, you're, that's about, an absurd right argument. Right now, we have a guy who is self-dealing like crazy. I I agree with you that Trump is far worse ethically than Barack Obama was, but he wasn't in existence yet. So you can't use him as a point of comparison. Well, he wasn't. I'm saying is that you're saying like the journalist said, okay, we're going to protect Obama no matter what. And then all of a sudden we're going to turn on Donald Trump. And what I'm saying is that they didn't have to turn on Donald Trump. He just led them to it. He no, he, he I, handed it to them. I, I There's some truth to that. But the only reason why they were willing to go after Trump is it's it's there's no downside. There's no fear of being racist. They don't own him because they don't like him. He's a he's a, a right winger in their minds, even though I don't even think he's conservative. I think he's actually more liberal than anything. But that's a totally different story for another day. The point here is they it was in their interest to go after Trump and to let and to use the weapons that he gave them against him. With Obama, it was look the other way, get out the pom-poms, he's our guy, yay, yay, go Barack. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was, and, and, and the idea that you're a journalism professor and you're, you seem unwilling to fully acknowledge the level to which the news media knelt down for Barack Obama, to me, goes against the credibility of, of academia in general and, and, frankly, goes to this whole issue of why conservatives aren't buying anything that the media sells them. They lost oh, well, all things. their credibility. Two things. One is that you don't really seem to like Obama very much. And I, I actually, <laughs> but bizarrely, bizarrely, hold on a second. <laughs> I, I did a again. I did an entire documentary film, which was an enormous part of my life, called okay. Media Malpractice: How Obama Got Elected. And I like Barack Obama more than I like Donald Trump, which uh, well, I never, th- I never thought well, would Trump be even possible. When you, when you decide to like or not like Obama, but anyways, the other point is, let's go back to our orig- my original uh, discussion point with you, which was what that the media imploded over economic dysfunction. Right. When did that start? Oh, my gosh. I think it started in um, the early 90s with cable television. No, 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 no. Because the late 90s was actually the golden age for newspapers because the Internet was coming in. You asked me when it started. Yeah, no, no. uh, I'm saying that it actually actually started in 2000, the the real deterioration. Whatever. After the the dot-com bubble burst. But when did it really start increasing rapidly? 2008. The economic uh, recession slash depression destroyed the news business. So the people that you're complaining about not going after Obama, they were desperate to save their jobs. Half of them, three quarters, 
80% of them ended up losing their jobs. And then what's the, the easiest way to lose your job is to be appear to be racist. And if, well, you, and if you criticize a black president who's beloved by the rest of the news media, guess what? You might be called racist and you might be out of a job. So that's... Well, you know, yeah. We can spend a lot of time talking about, you know, are we talking about the investigative reports? Are we talking about the GA report? Are we talking about the editorial pages? Because they're, they're, everyone seems to conjole them together. In, in Obama's case, they were all on the same page. <laughs> I think you could find some criticism of Obama on the news pages Very or some little. reporting. Very yeah, little. Well, that would be a good, that should be your next documentary. Yeah, no one cares about that. All right, last <laughs> thing. No, last thing for you, Joel. So, okay. so where is this all headed? So you're saying that journalism is being made great again by Donald Trump, that your students, yes. the quality of your students is increasing at Syracuse, uh, mm-hmm. even though there's, there's uh, you know, almost nobody there who would admit uh, voting for, for Donald Trump. Uh, but where, where will this go with regard to the relationship between uh, journalism and Trump? Well, I think that, you know, as long as Trump is president and even beyond, um, they're going to, it's going to be nonstop. It's going to be 24 seven. And, um, you know, I mean, he, he, I agree with you. He's not a conservative or, 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 or a liberal. He's really a narcissist. It's all about him. Right. And so if he's out of the news for more than 48 hours. That will not do. And, uh, so, so it's not like they have to even dig that much. He, like I said, he provides it. But, so I think it, it will be nonstop and they'll be all over the place. And also, you know, the thing is, as president, you have your hands in everything. So you have the Paris Agreement. You have North Korea. You have immigration. There's a zillion stories out there. And now people care about these stories. Right. Well, so they're actually reading Because them. now they're actually being reported because it's a different president. Yeah. But here's, here's my major question for you. And this will be the last one. I appreciate okay. you being a good sport. Uh, yeah. But do you believe that journalism sees whether or not they're going to be able to bring down Donald Trump as effectively a a measurement of their purpose for existence. In other words, does journalism as a whole see that if we can't take out Trump, then our entire existence is at stake here? All right, so that goes back to what I told you earlier. I think a lot of people feel that way, and I think that's a mistake. I think that's not the role of journalists. The role of journalism is to do as much as you can to be, be accurate, report accurately, and get the truth as, as, as you can figure it out what the truth is, and then let the chips fall. Now, I think there's a lot of people out there who say, if we don't get rid of Trump, then, then we might as well just you know, close the door and lock it. But the point is, my feeling is, give the public all the information you can and let them decide. If they decide, I don't care. I don't care what he does or what he says on Inside Edition or, or, or what he says to the president of North Korea or what he does or what he doesn't say about the thing in, Char- in, Char- in, uh, in uh, Virginia. Yeah, yeah Charlottesville. Um, I like him anyways. That's fine. We're giving you the information. You can make an informed decision. That really goes back to the founding fathers. The role of the media is to, so the public can make an informed decision. doesn't mean they have to make the decision you want them to make. What you consider the right decision or the wrong decision, they should make a decision. What you don't want is for them to come back and say, why didn't you tell us about this? We're going to tell you about everything we know, the good and the bad, by the way. And they probably haven't said as much about the good. And there is some good. You did create a million new jobs. The unemployment is down. I mean, there's all talk, well, how much is that to him and all that? Uh, but, you know, 
immigration enforcement is up. Some people don't like that, but, you know, that's what he campaigned on. And if you should be able to say this is what's happening here and you should be able to lay all that out. And then the public makes their decisions. And you shouldn't get mad if they if, if you say, well, I told you about this and you're not you're not doing that. Because the, sometimes I think the public's dumb. But most of the time, I think they're very smart and they make decisions not on just one thing. They make things on a lot of different things. And so maybe what you tell them is, yeah, but that's not that important to me that he did this. What's more important to me is that he did this other thing. And so that's how they vote. And that's fine. But you do but you do agree that journalism as a whole, the media as a whole, does see whether or not they can bring Trump down as a measurement of their purpose in life at this point. I think some do because again, we go back kind of like what, what, what they're looking at is would the Washington Post have, have gotten all the glory if Nixon hadn't resigned, right? Now, Watergate, they laid it out. What if after they laid it all out, uh, Nixon had, had the type of uh, Republican Congress that Trump has, and they would have said, okay, fine, he made some mistakes, but it's not impeachable. Uh, let's just move on, right? Right. Would, would the, would the thought that they were a failure? Maybe they would have, but they shouldn't. Because that's, again, not the role. And that's when I did the Bill Boner stories and he got elected mayor, it's not like I said, oh, my God, I'm going to hang myself. I go, okay, I did my job. You guys made your choice. You can live with it now. All right, fair enough. Uh, Joel Kaplan, who is the Associate Dean of Graduate Programs and Journalism Professor at the Syracuse University Newhouse School, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. John, it was a pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. Take care. Okay, sounds good. Bye-bye. So that'll do it for hour number two of this World According to Zig podcast. Make sure you check out all of our podcasts at our website, which is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. We try to do all sorts of interviews. Not all of them can be with somebody who is very well known, but I found uh, Joel to be uh, very honest about uh, the situation. Not 100% because I think, you know, obviously he has things he has to protect as a what I believe to be a liberal member of academia, but by and large, uh, I thought that was an interesting and honest conversation, and I hope you did as well. If you do, please make sure you share this via social media, Facebook, Twitter, what have you. After all, those are that's only one of two things I ever ask of you. Share this podcast, number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, make sure you pay attention to this important message. My name's John Ziegler, our website, freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, one, two, one, two.